This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julian Smith, InOverYourHead.net White Fang by Jack London, Part 4, Chapter 3 Chapter 3 the reign of hate. Under the tutelage of the mad god, White Fang became a fiend. He was kept chained in a pen at the rear of the fort, and here Beauty Smith teased and irritated and drove him wild with petty torments. The man early discovered White Fang's susceptibility to laughter, and made it a point, after painfully tricking him, to laugh at him. This laughter was uproarious and scornful and at the same time the god pointed his finger derisively at White Fang. At such times, reason fled from White Fang, and in his transports of rage he was even more mad than Beauty Smith. Formerly, White Fang had been merely the enemy of his kind, with all a ferocious enemy. He now became the enemy of all things, and more ferocious than ever. To such an extent was he tormented that he hated blindly and without the faintest spark of reason. He hated the chain that bound him, the men who peered in at him through the slats of the pen, the dogs that accompanied the men, and that snarled malignantly at him in his helplessness. He hated the very wood of the pen that confined him. And first, last, and most of all, he hated Beauty Smith. But Beauty Smith had a purpose in all that he did to White Fang. One day a number of men gathered about the pen, Beauty Smith entered club in hand, and took the chain off from White Fang's neck. When his master had gone out, White Fang turned loose and tore around the pen, trying to get at the men outside. He was magnificently terrible. Fully five feet in length, and standing two and one-half feet at the shoulder, he far outweighed a wolf of corresponding size. From his mother he had inherited the heavier proportions of the dog, so that he weighed without any fat and without an ounce of superfluous flesh over ninety pounds. It was all muscle, bone, and sinew-fighting flesh in the finest condition. The door of the pen was being opened again. White Fang paused. Something unusual was happening. He waited. The door was opening wider. Then a huge dog was thrust inside, and the door was slammed shut behind him. White Fang had never seen such a dog. It was a mastiff, but the size and fierce aspect of the intruder did not deter him. Here was something, not wood nor iron, upon which to wreak his hate. He leaped in with a flash of fangs that ripped down the side of the mastiff's neck. The mastiff shook his head, growled hoarsely, and plunged at White Fang. But White Fang was here, there, and everywhere, always evading and eluding, always leaping in and slashing with his fangs, and leaping out again in time to escape punishment. The men outside shouted and applauded, while Beauty Smith, in an ecstasy of the light, gloated over the ripping and mangling performed by White Fang. There was no hope for the Mastiff from the first. He was too ponderous and slow. In the end, while Beauty Smith beat White Fang back with a club, the Mastiff was dragged out by its owner. Then there was a payment of bets, and money clinked in Beauty Smith's hand. 
White Fang came to look forward eagerly to the gathering of the men around his pen. It meant a fight, and this was the only way that was now vouchsafed him of expressing the life that was in him. Tormented, inclined to hate, he was kept a prisoner so that there was no way of satisfying that hate except at the times his master saw fit to put another dog against him. Beauty Smith had estimated his power well, for he was invariably the victor. One day, three dogs were turned upon him in succession. Another day, a full-grown wolf, fresh caught from the wild, was shoved in through the door of the pen. And on still another day, two dogs were set against him at the same time. This was his severest fight, and though in the end he killed them both, he was himself half-killed in doing it. In the fall of the year, when the first snows were falling and mush ice was running in the river, Beauty Smith took passage for himself and White Fang on a steamboat bound up the Yukon to Dawson. White Fang had now achieved a reputation in the land. As the fighting wolf was he known far and wide, and the cage in which he was kept on the steamboat's deck was usually surrounded by curious men. He raged and snarled at them, or lay quietly and studied them with cold hatred. Why should he not hate them? He never asked himself the question. He only knew hate and lost himself in the passion of it. Life had become a hell to him. He had not been made for the close confinement wild beasts endure at the hands of men. And yet it was in precisely this way that he was treated. Men stared at him, poked sticks between the bars to make him snarl, and then laughed at him. They were his environment, these men, and they were molding the clay of him into a more ferocious thing than had been intended by nature. Nevertheless, nature had given him plasticity. Where many another animal would have died or had its spirit broken, he adjusted himself and lived at no expense of the spirits. Possibly Beauty Smith, archfiend and tormentor, was capable of breaking White Fang's spirit, but as yet there were no signs of his succeeding. If Beauty Smith had in him a devil, White Fang had another, and the two of them raged against each other unceasingly. In the days before, White Fang had had the wisdom to cower down and submit to a man with a club in his hand, but this wisdom now left him. The mere sight of Beauty Smith was sufficient to send him into transports of fury. And when they came to close quarters, and he had been beaten back by the club, he went on growling and snarling and showing his fangs. The last growl could never be extracted from him. No matter how terribly he was beaten, he had always another growl. And when Beauty Smith gave up and withdrew, the defiant growl followed after him. Or White Fang sprang at the bars of the cage, bellowing his hatred. When the steamboat arrived at Dawson, White Fang went ashore, but he still lived a public life in a cage surrounded by curious men. He was exhibited as the Fighting Wolf, and men paid fifty cents in gold dust to see him. He was given no rest. Did he lie down to sleep? He was stirred up by a sharp stick, so that the audience might get its money's worth. In order to make the exhibition interesting, he was kept in a rage most of the time. But worse than all this was the atmosphere in which he lived. He was regarded as the most fearful of wild beasts, and this was borne into him through the bars of the cage. Every word, every cautious action on the part of the men, impressed upon him his own terrible ferocity. It was so much added fuel to the flame of his fierceness. There could be but one result, 
and that was his ferocity fed upon itself and increased. It was another instance of the plasticity of his clay, of his capacity for being molded by the pressure of environment. In addition to being exhibited, he was a professional fighting animal. At irregular intervals, whenever a fight could be arranged, he was taken out of his cage and led off into the woods a few miles from town. Usually this occurred at night, so as to avoid interference from the mounted police of the territory. After a few hours of waiting, when daylight had come, the audience and the dog with which he was to fight arrived. In this manner it came about that he fought all sizes and breeds of dogs. It was a savage land, the men were savage, and the fights were usually to the death. Since White Fang continued to fight, it is obvious that it was the other dogs that died. He never knew defeat. His early training, when he fought with Lip Lip and the whole puppy pack, stood him in good stead. There was the tenacity with which he clung to the earth. No dog could make him lose his footing. This was the favorite trick of the wolf breeds, to rush in upon him, either directly or with an unexpected swerve, in the hope of striking his shoulder and overthrowing him. Mackenzie hounds, Eskimo and Labrador dogs, Huskies and Malamutes all tried it on him, and all failed. He was never known to lose his footing. Men told this to one another and looked each time to see it happen, but White Fang always disappointed them. Then there was his lightning quickness. It gave him a tremendous advantage over his antagonists. No matter what their fighting experience, they had never encountered a dog that moved so swiftly as he. Also to be reckoned with was the immediateness of his attack. The average dog was accustomed to the preliminaries of snarling and bristling and growling, and the average dog was knocked off his feet and finished before he had begun to fight or recovered from his surprise. So often did this happen that it became the custom to hold White Fang until the other dog went through its preliminaries, was good and ready, and even made the first attack. But greatest of all the advantages in White Fang's favor was his experience. He knew more about fighting than did any of the dogs that faced him. He had fought more fights, knew how to meet more tricks and methods, and had more tricks himself while his own method was scarcely to be improved upon. As the time went by, he had fewer and fewer fights. Men despaired of matching him with an equal, and Beauty Smith was compelled to pit wolves against him. These were trapped by the Indians for the purpose, and a fight between White Fang and a wolf was always sure to draw a crowd. Once, a full-grown female lynx was secured, and this time White Fang fought for his life. Her quickness matched his, her ferocity equaled his, while he fought with his fangs alone, she fought with her sharp-clawed feet as well. But after the lynx, all fighting ceased for White Fang. There were no more animals with which to fight. At least, there was none considered worthy of fighting him. So he remained on exhibition until spring, when one Tim Keenan, a faro dealer, arrived in the land. With him came the first bulldog that had ever entered the Klondike. That this dog and White Fang should come together was inevitable, and for a week the anticipated fight was the mainspring of conversation in certain quarters of the town. End of chapter 3